Father, we do praise you this morning. You are our fountain of hope. Father God, there's no other place that we can go. There's no other place that we can escape. Lord God, where would we go outside of your presence? Lord God, that you would not find us. We have a secure hope in you, Lord God. And we are so thankful for that. Jesus, you are powerful. Lord God, and we want to magnify you this morning. So as we continue in worship this morning, I pray for our hearts to attune to your word. Lord God, your love letter to us that you've given us to shepherd us throughout the ages. Father God, we praise you this morning. Lord God, we submit ourselves to your word. Lord God, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may have a seat. Well, good morning, church. My name is Dustin Allen. I'm one of the pastors here at Cross. And I just wanna thank you. We're in James 1, if you wanna go ahead and turn there. Uh, I wanna thank you for joining with us this morning. If you're new to us, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you. James 1, 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and, its, and it withers the grass, its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. When I was looking over this text and really kind of thinking of, what, of kind of an illustration, uh, I, took, I went back to 2020 as, as a place and a starting point to really kind of frame our time. Lots of things changed. One thing I noted is that I moved from 12 font to 14 font in order to read. So, you know, that's what happens uh, as time goes along. But most importantly, 2020 was a time of upheaval. Everything was turned upside down, right? Businesses shut down, uh, business models changed, right? Yet, for a few brief weeks, life became a little bit simpler, didn't it, right? Suddenly there was an opportunity to slow down, to be with one's family, uh, to reconnect. And for some of you, that was a good thing. For some of you, not so good. But under trial, people had an opportunity to grow. Another connecting point there was there were some studies that were done. Seismologists were actually studying the earth and there's a normal human kind of frequency, a hum uh, around the globe uh, each and every day. But when we were all in lockdown and we were all forced to be inside or some of us, right? Because some of you, you know, were like me and we were out at Sands and we were out at the beach because we can do that right here in South Carolina. That's right. So we're just rebellious folk. It's okay. And get over it. All right. So what happened though during that study is that because things were so quiet, they were actually to hear, they were able to hear things that they hadn't heard before. Uh, plate tectonics were moving and they were able to predict earlier and earlier uh, when an earthquake would happen because they could actually hear it for the first time uh, during that time. So a lot of research was done and I can't help but make some spiritual connections there. When we think about all the turmoil that happened in 2020, right? So once the distractions of our cultures were finally removed from us, they were forced on us, right? To not, to not uh, connect in those different ways. We were actually given an opportunity through trial to focus in on the Lord and hear him in those quiet moments. And isn't this church how the Lord speaks to us today? It's one of the few ways that he really truly goes to his children in the quiet. When we seek out those quiet moments, even in the midst of chaos, we learn to listen to the Lord more clearly as he speaks to our souls. If you're joining with us for the first time today, we are in the book of Jackson, James, Jacks. I don't even know what Jacks is, but James, we're in the book of James. I'll get there, but guys. Look, sometimes, you know, you hear things over and over again, you know, because I've literally 
preached this already once, so that's what happens. So we're in the book of James, and we will be through the end of the year uh, as, we're, as we're connecting here. And what I want to see is for us to connect the dots. In, in James uh, 1, 2, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And this is where we connect the dots to the theme of our time, that we are to count it all joy as we face various trials. And we know that there are several different trials. So as we came to the text last week, uh, Pastor Taylor in verses five through eight, it helped us see that how we are to learn to grow in wisdom under trial. Uh, and today in, chap- in uh, verses nine through 11, what I want you to see is how do we actually grow in dependence on the Lord under our trial. So the main idea this morning is that believers should remain steadfast, steadfast in whatever situation the Lord has called them to. That's the main idea, the main takeaway that James has for us. And like the illustration earlier, Christians are to see the trials that we face as an opportunity to grow in the Lord. You've heard me say it now multiple times. And in our time this morning, we will focus on two different types of people, right? That James brings forward, the rich and the poor, um, to contrast how we are to walk through these different trials. So beginning in verse nine, let me read it again. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. First, I want you to see that the humble believer should focus on the Lord, not their situation. James begins this section under the reality that believers can and will face material disparity. Often in the context of a believer's life, at some point we will experience a trial that can hurt financially, or perhaps, guess what? This is just the life that you have lived. Thinking of third world context where this is all that you know and have brought up with. So it's all that you know. In whatever case, the picture is still the same. We are to boast in our circumstances, not because we find joy in the situation, but because we know the author of the story and what he has called us to. Now, interestingly, in both this section, we see that both people, the rich and the poor, are to boast. And this is an interesting term, boasting, which we'll see it applies to both the rich and the poor, like I said, but it's not about arrogantly thinking about oneself, but about connecting to the one that we are to exalt, the savior of the universe and his mighty works in our lives. See, this unique boasting for the poor believer also carries a much richer context than just a focus on material poor as well. Because we're boasting, and James wants us to see this. James doesn't want us to just see the trials of poverty, but he also wants us to connect the dot to the humility that we are to exhibit as believers because we are spiritually bankrupt. Each and every single one of us. Lost, that's where we start. We are spiritually poor. See, this spiritual humility should lead believers to see our life in the context of a Savior who has called us his own. We are to boast, therefore, in our status before the Lord. And for the poor man, we're raised up to in the status, right? Now we are elevated to child of the most high God, heir. That's our status. That's the reason why we can boast. For those who were with us while we were walking through the Sermon on the Mount, remember when Jesus said, right? Blessed are the who in spirit? The poor in spirit. Thank you. Good participation this morning. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 3. See, this poor person is the one who is humbled by how broken they truly are spiritually. They see the frailty in life that is without God and they humble themselves. And what does Christ tell them? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the humility the Lord honors and moves towards. It's the humility that draws us ever closer to redemption. This puts a new spin on our suffering. 
And it helps us to see the divine perspective of all that is around us in our trials. Why? Because when we're in the trial, right, we just see right here in front of us. We need a larger perspective. We need to grow in our perspective. So as I was thinking about a few biblical examples, uh, the first one that came to mind was King David. Now, before King David was king, what was he? A shepherd. That was a four-year-old, by the way. I love that. That's good. He was a shepherd. Poor. And even in the family, he was pretty well just a runt. They cast him out there while his brothers, they, weren't, they didn't even think him worthy to come when Samuel called uh, all, all of the sons, right? No, he was, he was poor in spirit. But what's interesting is when David comes on the scene and when he comes to Israel, he carries this humility with him. And I think of the, the scene I'm thinking of is when the Ark of the Covenant is being brought into Jerusalem. And there's this great celebration and King David is partying it up. He is debasing himself. He is dancing before the Lord. He's humiliating himself. His royal garments are gone, right? The crown is gone. He is just praising his Lord. And it's in that moment that his wife, Michael, actually comes to him and she is ashamed by his actions, by his foolish behavior. Now listen how David responds to her. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. He's like, listen, honey, you ain't seen bad yet. I, I can go far lower in humiliating myself before a risen savior. And I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken by them, I shall be held in honor. He sees the connection that in humiliating himself before the Lord, the Lord is the one that exalts him, that makes him stand, that established his kingdom for there. For David, he was willing to humble himself far more for his savior. He didn't care about the status before men. His only concern in that moment was to glorify the one and only true king. Jesus himself would continually challenge his followers to serve others instead of exalting themselves, right? In the context of Pharisees, right? Who wanted to push down on the community that was around them through their religious beliefs, right? Jesus is telling them, and he wanted, they wanted to be served. They wanted the, the, the high table, here, Jesus is challenging them to serve one another. And this was counterintuitive in a culture, right, that associated material wealth with favor from God. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, no kidding. That's where we live, right? It's right now. Matthew 23, 12, he says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Paul likewise would instruct the Roman believers who undoubtedly faced numerous trials for their faith, and they were also to adopt a posture of humility. He says what? Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Finally, the apostle Peter would instruct believers likewise to those that were in exile, right? They were, had faced persecution for their faith and were pushed out throughout the Roman kingdom. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why would this be such an important theme throughout the scriptures? Because this posture takes our eyes off ourselves and draws our attention upward to our savior. So as we can see, James has in mind both the material and the spiritually poor, and both have the ability to boast in the Lord because of what Christ has done for them both. Now let's turn attention to the wealthy. And this is actually where James spends the majority of his time, so we, we will too. Right here in verse 10, he says, the rich... And remember, and what's the rich doing? They are to boast, right? And the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. 
So number two, I want you to see that the rich believer should hope in the Lord, not their wealth. The rich believer should hope in the Lord, not their wealth. Interestingly, James does not call the rich in this section brother. So I, I put it in, in the section here, but he may just be talking to the rich and just giving them a warning. But in either case, the, the outcome is the same. The emphasis is clear, right? The rich are to heed the warning for the rich person faces the temptation of glorying in wealth. And in one sense, the possession of wealth is a trial because it tempts rich people to rejoice in earthly treasures, temporary, those things that can be taken away. We know this to be true. We can understand the allurement of reaching a point of comfort and ease. We're in the low country. It's called the slow country for a reason. Uh, whether we have acquired wealth or long to attain it, at some point in our lives, we have been tempted to chafe, to ask, chafe after this temporal illusion of comfort. And this is the reason why it's hard to, for people to come to faith right here in the low country, right? Because why do people move to the low country? For those of you non-locals, which is most of you in here, myself included. Why do you move here? Ah, weather. Yeah, that's a good one. I can agree with that. No, this is a retirement community, just like Hilton Head, the whole Beaufort County. This is, this is an area where people are moving to post-work, right? This lovely idea that we've given over to ourselves over to in the U.S., right? You come here to take it easy. Take it easy. Yep, that's not... That's not what this is about. And what's interesting is about 10 years ago now, I had a, had a, a conversation with a local pastor that actually lived in Hilton Head. And he was talking about this very thing about how difficult it was to reach people for the gospel in this area. Uh, and he'd done through Bible studies, uh, through connecting, they actually taught over at U USCB, trying to connect the dots over there with the younger people. And he was just saying it was just so difficult to, to get inroads. And then that was only corroborated later because he, he brought some missionaries from China who were a part of the house church movement. Okay, these are the guys that are persecuted, right? The guys that lose their lives, get jailed for basically no reason whatsoever. They come over here and they're ministering to us. And when they walked away, they said, this is the darkest area that they'd ever been in. Why? Why the struggle? For the materially rich, this is a great temptation to be comfortable and content and to believe they are safe. If you have everything that you need material, right, then you don't need God. Hmm. Yet that's the thing that they need most. See, this in no, in no way means that those who are wealthy cannot be Christian. Please do not hear me say that. And if we're actually taking an honest assessment of most people in here, we are overall generally wealthy when in compared to, let's think, third world country, right? So we know that there is a wealth of a kind, right, that most people in this world do not enjoy, and we do. So categorically, we fall right here where James is talking. So the challenge and the rebuke is for us to consider. So James is speaking directly to us, warning us, and this doesn't happen just right here. What's interesting is that this theme, right, when we talk about trials as we're connecting it to wealth, James comes back to the rich again. And right here in chapter two that we'll see in a few weeks, he says, there is a sin of a kind where we show partiality to those that come into the church. So what happens, you know, when the rich walk in and the church is showing favoritism to them as opposed to those that come in that can't offer anything, right? They can't offer anything back. There's a sin of a kind there. 
He, later on, he would bring up that there's a boasting that happens, right? There's a danger for the wealthy, right? Because they're, they're boasting in what they have in chapter five. And we see that this is counterintuitive. Why? Because what they're doing is they're missing the whole point. They're missing the whole point of the matter. So what are the wealthy to do? How are they to gain the proper perspective of their need? James is clearly states, clearly states it right there. They are to boast. But boast in what? The wealthy are to boast in their humble spiritual status. They too, like the poor, are broken. They have no hope outside of Christ himself. They need their savior to redeem them, to move them. They, we are hopeless without a movement of the Lord. It is the area that the material wealth can do nothing, right? You can't throw money at this one. We cannot buy a spiritually pure heart. We cannot own a purifying cream that will cleanse us from all our unrighteousness, no matter how much we put it on. We cannot acquire one single item that will deliver us from the ultimate death that awaits us all because of our sin. Wealth can provide you nothing here. This reality should move us from the attention on material gain, right? As something that is preeminent by placing it where it belongs, subservient to boasting in the Lord, boasting in what he's done and what he's accomplished for our lives. It's exactly what Paul would tell the Philippian church, right? When he references Christ, he says, what? Have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Even Jesus, the one that truly owns it all, humbled himself to become a servant of all. Therefore, the materially rich ought to adopt this same mindset of debasing ourselves, humbling ourselves, putting down the struggle with pride and the false assumption of control. Right? It's an illusion. You don't control a thing, no matter how much you believe it. The assumption of control and humbly submitting to a loving Savior who is in fact numbered your days. And I love how James uses the perspective of boasting. We boast in this. We're to celebrate that we cannot accomplish this on your own. We can't do it. So we lay it down at his feet. We can do nothing but champion our, light, our lack of ability and channel all of who we are by pointing to Christ. And then comes right here, James again with a follow-up. He's connecting the dot to the rich, but he also has the lowly brother in mind as well. He says, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. What we need to see is all believers must see the swiftness of life through their trials. All believers must see the swiftness of life through their trials. Even though James is still focused on the materially wealthy, this last verse carries really application for all of us. Rich, poor, people from all walks of life, why will all eventually face death? 
See, the particular application for the wealthy is clear since the possession of money often gives wealthy people a false sense of security and illustration from nature then helps us to demonstrate the brevity and uncertainty of life. See, that's where James is comparing the pageantry of wealth resembles the blooming of a wild plant that soon fades away. But life is not only uncertain for the wealthy, for no one is sure when the Lord will call them home. No one. If life is so uncertain, then what should be our response? Make the most use of your time. Don't be flippant. Hear how Paul challenges the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. And that was written some 2,000 years ago, and it's still just as short today. The time is very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. It's passing away. It's fleeting. For the believer, we are not only dealing with time, but the temporal nature of wealth and anything that would serve, anything, guys. Move the context out. Make the application larger than just wealth and anything that would distract us from our singularly focused mission on Christ. Any of those distractions would rob us of what we need. Bottom line, anything outside of our Lord can be taken away. We know this. As some of you know, right? I, I got into banking in 2008. Bad time to get into banking. And at that time, I can tell you, uh, watching, because we, we, we were in Mount Pleasant was where my location was, and Mount Pleasant, Daniel Island, if you're familiar with that area, this is where there, there's a lot of wealth just centered in that part of Charleston. And so we had a lot of large accounts. And I can tell you no less than a half a dozen men and women that lost it all in a blink of an eye. Lost millions, just gone, evaporated. And all of that security was just ripped right out from underneath them. So how then ought we to think about our wealth? Over the past several weeks, we've seen how the book of James is like a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. So I want you to turn with me over to Matthew 6, and we'll see how Jesus makes this connection. Matthew 6. 19. It's on the screen behind me, or you can use your Bible. I prefer you use your Bible. Matthew 6, 19. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. Christ connects the dots for all believers at all times, right? The entrapments and allure of wealth can cause our hearts to grow dim, dark. And what, as we continually feed that lust for more, right? 
And like we learned last week, when our hearts become double-minded, we ultimately fall under sin's temptation and we have no guarantee that the Lord's hearing our prayers, right? Therefore, we must be singularly devoted to him no matter the circumstances that we find ourselves in or the trials uh, that are just around the bend, right? And And we know that we're going to experience trials. We always do. You live long enough on this life, there is going to be a hard time. But whatever the trial may be, perhaps it's the loss of a job or a loved one, the extended trials of caring for a child with disability, or perhaps it's a parent with onset dementia, Parkinson's. Perhaps it's that vehicle or that AC unit that constantly needs to be fixed, right? Forking out thousands of dollars over and over and over again, right? Or what if it's the real life persecution faced by millions across the globe where a believer loses everything for the sake of knowing Christ? Whatever it is, whatever the entrapment, whatever the trial, large or small, they must in that moment remember the sovereignty of God and the plan of God to use that trial to produce spiritual steadfastness in them. The Christian is called to respond in faith and love rather than in resignation, despair, anger, vindictiveness, or any other variety of possible sins. We all must live as if this day is our last, which is so hard to do in the moment when the press of the mundane would call our hearts to what? Grow complacent. To just just be listless. We must fight back with the truth that God has called his children to a life that should look different than the watching world. It's very different. As one commentator notes, life is full of a varying experiences and here is a typical contrast, the poor man and the rich. Each within his circumstances must rejoice, even glory, for this is the true response of the Christian. But each too must see his situation not through the eyes of the world's wisdom, but in the light of the wisdom sought by God. Well, brother, sister, we have much to celebrate and be thankful for. We have so much to grow in and praise him for. For what better life can be lived than one that is in passionate pursuit of Jesus? What then is the purpose of all of this? What is the Lord trying to teach you and me? Our goal is to grow in Christ's likeness through maturity, as we learned right there in James 1, 4, right where we started. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. So we must learn to turn all of our efforts to this, this singular focus, this goal, which will bring God great glory. As another commentator notes, life's pleasant paths are made all the sweeter as we keep in mind that they lead to this great spiritual end. Life's grim moments are to be endured patiently, remembering that patience and persistence turn sorrows into stepping stones. Let me read that again. That patience and persistence turn sorrows into stepping stones. Why is that, brothers and sisters? Because every stepping stone that I take is bringing me one step closer to my Lord. We're all going to cross that river together. And by golly, when we see his face on the other side, all of this life is going to pale away as we behold his majesty. This is what life circumstances bring us ever closer to him. Mm. Think with me for a moment. Isn't this the overall good that Paul has in mind, right? When he writes to the Romans that we're facing all sorts of various trials. Isn't this the abundant life that Christ has in mind for his children? 
right here, right now, that you get to live. See, if we can catch the larger vision that God has for all of our lives, then an all of life will become all the more sweeter. Although we may not be given all the answers to our suffering, we are given all of the very one that will move our lives from the temporal to eternal peace with him. So how can we apply this? Three simple ways. One, know the Lord. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understand and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness on the earth. For in these things, I delight, declares the Lord. We place our hope in the pursuit of wealth of the temporal comfort it provides, but nothing will sustain us more than our beloved savior. But now let me challenge you for a little bit. Many of us have been walking with the Lord for a long time. And instead of our hearts growing more vibrant and on fire for the Lord, we have grown complacent. We have experienced this, this energy within us that has just gone down and just become lackadaisical almost. What do we need to do? We need to reinvigorate this life that we have that Christ has called us to. We've been too distracted by the trappings of this world and we need to remove that. You need to take a spiritual inventory of your life and connect the dots, removing the fluff so that you can see him clearly, so that you can walk in him. And if this is you this morning, let me encourage you. It's time to reconnect. Reconnect with your savior, the one that loves you. Take this moment as an opportunity to know him more. When the prayer team comes down at the end and you're, you're really wanting to connect the dots more, come down and speak with someone. Let them pray over you. Don't let that baggage that you come in with leave with you. Connect the dots. Number two, seek the Lord. For some of you this morning, it's already a time where you're ready to turn to, turn to Christ. Perhaps you've been chasing the bunny down the rabbit hole long enough and you're ready to turn to the one that gives us true hope. Or you're the one who is lowly and downtrodden. This is the life that was given to you, right? And that's where you live. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Trust in him to sustain you when everything has been taken away. Trust in his grace and mercy. He is never too far out of reach for any one of us. Psalm 40:16 says, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. And finally, rest in the Lord. For some of you this morning, you've already faced numerous trials in your life. And let me encourage you to hang on. Hang on closer than you ever have before, for you already know that the sustaining power of the Lord can keep you. Let me finish where we'll pick back up next week. But I think it's beautifully done where James is connecting the dots for all of these trials. James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Mm, good words. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you very much for our time this morning. Thank you, Lord, that through the struggle of life, all the trials that we endure, Lord God, 
that you uphold us completely. Lord God, we have no other hope, no other place that we can go to, Lord God, that we will find security apart from you. Lord, I know there are some here that do not know you. I pray that you will reveal yourself even in these moments as we continue to worship you. Lord, but let them not walk out of here without experiencing you. Turn their hearts away from the ever-invasive trial that they face to see that there is a God that stands above all trials and tribulations and struggles and sins. That you are sovereign over all, Lord God, and you desire a relationship to us. Lord, I ask that you would be with us now as we continue in worship, as we look to the Lord's Supper and what you wanted called us to remember, your sacrifice. And it's through that sacrifice, Lord God, that we can continue to worship, continue to grow until the day that you call us home. Father, so we love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name, amen. So again, if you're new to Cross, uh, we take communion every week, primarily because when knuckleheads like me don't land on the gospel, uh, we will always land on the gospel in the Lord's Supper because it's the most important thing. And when we come to the Lord's Supper, Christ is calling us to remember. Remember what he has done. Remember what the sacrifice was made on our behalf. So if you are a follower of Christ, um, this table is for you. If you've sacrificed everything and turned to him, you've repented of your sins, you've trusted him as Lord and Savior, and you're walking faithfully with him, this table is for you. This table is also not for the perfect, right? Because none of us would have access. Christ is the one that was perfect. It is for the broken. But it is for the broken who are repenting. And let me caveat that because we're gonna read in 1 Corinthians right now as we're preparing. And why don't you go ahead and do that right now while you're preparing and listening to me. Uh, right in the front, we have these little tabs. The bread is on the bottom, the juice is on the top. Go ahead and get ready. But I think it's fitting since James is giving us a warning. Um, let's go to Paul as he gives a warning uh, to the Corinthian church. Now, whatever was going on in that time, the Corinthian church had, had clearly gotten off kilter when it came to communion and there were people that were abusing the privilege. They were feasting when they should have been sharing. Uh, they were consuming versus spreading what needed to be for everybody, the whole communion. And because they were taking in, in an unworthy manner, Paul literally says that some of you are falling asleep. In other words, they were dying. So although this is not salvific, right? This is just juice, this is just bread. Who it represents is worthy of all praise and glory and honor. So we don't take it lightly and we heed the warnings. So if you're here and, you, and you're just not repentant, you're just sitting wholeheartedly in your sin and you drink this cup in an unworthy manner, then you are drinking condemnation upon your own soul. Do business with the Lord 
He's not far, as we've already talked about. The gospel is available for you. So repent. Don't just go through the motions. Repent and trust in him and follow him in his footsteps. So Paul told the Corinthian church, he said, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you belong to Christ, this belongs to you. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. If you belong to Christ, this belongs to you. And Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we have proclaimed it again today. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Would you stand as we continue in worship?